Well, you can see the title that we gave today was Like Father, Like Son. Can you imagine what it's like to be the son of Michael Jackson? If you're under 18, I feel I should ask, do you know who Michael Jackson is? You do, yeah? King of pop and all that. Michael had three children, Michael Joseph Jr., Paris, and Prince Michael Jackson II. And slightly confusingly, Michael Joseph Jr. is also known as Prince, and Prince Michael Jackson II is also known as Blanket. But uh, the three children were still very young when their father sadly died in 2009. And during their childhood, Michael insisted they wore masks in public to protect their identities. So in one sense, they've had a shielded life. But Prince, who's the oldest, has recently graduated from college in the USA and he's given one or two rare interviews. Now the questions are predictable. They go like this. Can you sing? No. Can you dance? No. Have you tried the moonwalk? I tried and it was embarrassing. But you're working as a music producer? No, I produce music videos. It's very different. What about the allegations of sexual abuse regarding your father? Well, it was all a shock. It all came at once, but we learned how to deal with it by just kind of ignoring it. What are you doing with all the money? Well, I've started a charity called Heal Los Angeles. You don't have to be a pop star to make a difference. Well, it's, it's hard not to feel a great deal of sympathy and sadness for all that someone like Prince Jackson has experienced. He's likely to be forever in his father's shadow, constantly being compared and contrasted. But again, you don't have to be a pop star to have a messed up family. You don't have to be a pop star's child to feel the effects of decisions that others have made around you, but that stick with you now. Some would say it feels as if there's an inevitability about life. Alcoholics breed alcoholics. Children of divorcees struggle in their own marriages. Terrible tempers pass through generations. Does it have to be like that? And sometimes it's just within our own lives, the inevitability of cycles of mistakes and learning from mistakes and fresh starts and then making mistakes all over again. What does it look like to trust God in the midst of all that? Is it possible? Well, if you're a Christian, well, we, we know, don't we, trusting God is kind of Christianity 101. It's, it's what we're supposed to do. It's obvious. It just trips off the tongue. And on Sundays, we sing of that, and we pray, and we talk to friends about trusting God. But on Monday, we're back with the family and the job and school and, frankly, the mess of real life, where despite our best intentions... We get it wrong, we fail to live up to expectations, and that's not even God's expectations or other people's expectations, it's just our own expectations. We can't even do that. Is this all inevitable? Or is there more we can say? Well, wonderfully, the the picture of the world that the Bible gives us is much more like pitch black, rainy Monday morning than some kind of whitewashed, smiley Sunday Utopia that, by the way, doesn't really exist. The story of the patriarchs in Genesis is a story of a seriously messed up family, worthy of an episode, if not the entire series, on Jeremy Kyle. 
chapters 25 to 35 are largely about Jacob, but our author calls it the account of Isaac, and that's who we meet briefly in this chapter that I'm about to read. In other chapters in Genesis, Isaac is a rather passive participant in the shadow, first of all, of Abraham and later of, of Jacob and Esau and, and, and Joseph and all the, the, the tribes that come up, the, the sons of Jacob. But here in chapter 26, we get the fullest insight into his life. And like Prince Jackson and millions of others, you know, we've been thinking, hearing this week about Prince Harry and, and what's going on in that family. The burning question here in this family is, Isaac, are you going to be like your dad? Are you going to mess up like your father Abraham? Because he surely did mess up in big ways, as we saw last year. Or, actually, like your father Abraham, are you going to have faith? Because over and over again we saw Abraham revealed as this flawed man of faith. If the theme of Abraham's life in uh, chapters 12 to 25 was faith, the theme in the life of Isaac and Jacob and Esau is grace, relentless grace. Relentless grace of God to the undeserving, to the messed up, to the dysfunctional, to the sinner. And God's grace not just to them but through the undeserving, the messed up, the dysfunctional, the sinner, to a broken world. So that's what we see here in chapter 26 as we focus on Isaac. And as I read this now, as you listen and as you read, look for signs of God's grace, of his undeserved kindness in the life of Isaac. Follow with me on page 27. I'm going to read up to verse 33. We'll leave the last couple of verses. I think they go better with next week's reading, but chapter 26, verse 1 on page 27. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said... She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because... I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. 
So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzar, his personal advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me, since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do to us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. So there we go. It breaks down into four main sections, as you can see on the handouts. So first of all, the grace of God and the life of Isaac we see in famine, verses 1 to 5. Now, like father, like son, that's the question. Do you remember last time we, we began to see some parallels between Abraham and Isaac, chapter 12, chapter 25? It's the same again now. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine back in chapter 12, and it's directly referenced here, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. The narrator is saying, remember chapter 12. And that was the one when Abraham went straight down to Egypt as soon as famine struck. Now, going to Egypt is never a good idea in the Bible. But it's attractive because all along the Nile is pretty much guaranteed fertile land and no shortage of food. So that's why you want to go there. That's why you think, no food, right, off to Egypt, straight away. But verse 2, have a look. God intervenes. Do not go down to Egypt. Live in this land. Now, Isaac is in Gerar, verse 1, which is on the southern edge of Canaan the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants, now the promise is repeated. It's about land, the same land. It's about offspring. But just note two things in particular. Isaac is specifically promised, I will be with you. Now that is not something that was said to Abraham. It's a strengthening of the promise that follows. I will bless you. And then as before, through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. 
still all based on Abraham's obedience faith. So the question as this narrative gets going is, will it be like father, like son in the face of famine? And what are we like when famine or its equivalent comes? Hard times hit. Do we find ourselves falling into familiar patterns and coping mechanisms, whether they're our own or they're learnt from someone else in our family background or whatever? You know, no time for Bible and prayer now. Take all the shortcuts you can. Shortcuts, short tempers, skipping meals, skipping church, cutting down on family time, on sleep, looking after number one because, after all, who else is going to? That's the question here for Isaac too. Which way is Isaac going to go? And so next, verses 6 to 11, comes fear. Fear. So verse 6, Isaac does not go down to Egypt like Abraham did. He settles in Gerar. And we all breathe a big sigh of relief. But then, just like with Abraham, actually just like with Abraham twice in Abraham's life, chapter 12, chapter 22 in Genesis, fear sets in. You see, Rebecca is very beautiful. And we're told that in chapter 24 when, when they met. And, and for Isaac, this is no longer a good thing for him. Because he's scared that her beauty will have fatal implications for him. And it's not as far-fetched as you might think that he could end up dead. Well, actually, just think of one of Isaac's most famous direct descendants, King David. What does he do when he takes a fancy to beautiful Bathsheba? Well, he arranges for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. So, in fear, Isaac employs the same ruse that Abraham employed, first in Egypt, but then later in chapter 22, as we said. And perhaps we should have spotted this. Abraham did exactly this in Gerar in chapter 22. Oh dear. Not only then is the location the same, the king is the same. It's Abimelech. Or at least they have the same name. It's possible now that this is the first Abimelech's son. Presumably this all happens before the birth of Jacob and Esau, or else it would be more obvious that Isaac and Rebekah were married. You know, like in modern biography, events are sometimes arranged thematically. But Abimelech looks out of the window and he sees Isaac caressing Rebekah. Now, literally, it says he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, which is a play on words, because that's what his name means. He is Isaacing with her. And, of course, it's a euphemism for something that is intimate enough to make it clear to Abimelech, who's looking out the window, hang on a minute, this isn't a brother and sister relationship. Now, have you ever observed how fear so easily turns us into false prophets? We allow our minds to run away with us. You know, there's a small skin blemish that wasn't there before, and we're making mental arrangements for our own funeral. There's a big exam coming up, and we have visions of lifelong unemployment and misery. What if the worst happens, we ask ourselves? Better get panicking now. After all, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. But that is how it is for Isaac here. But it's all false prophecy. Abimelech has been here before, or at least he will have heard it from his father, if that's how it is. You can imagine the eye rolling, can't you? Why did you lie about her? Because, 
says Isaac, I thought I might lose my life. Well, did it ever cross your mind, Isaac, that Abimelech might actually turn out to be honourable? He's a pagan king, but he's still actually quite concerned about bringing guilt on himself and on his household. So, he orders Isaac and Rebekah to be protected. And then after fear, after misplaced fear, comes, thirdly, frustration. Frustration. What follows then is a mixed bag of blessings and trials. Because how might we expect God to respond to Isaac's fearful unfaithfulness? He's just done exactly the same thing as Abraham did. Well, what happens in verse 12? God blesses him with crops. He grows so wealthy that he begins to outstay his welcome among the Philistines. And then there is this cycle of frustration and relief. Wells are dug. Now, water is very important when you don't live near the Nile or or somewhere like that. and It's a hot climate. This is about flourishing in the land. If you look at verse 22, that is what the aim is here. If you've got a well, it's like buying a house and settling down with the job in place and everything else. Get the well sorted and all will be fine. But they stop up all the wells that Abraham had dug in the area. And when he reopens them, they move him on. And they quarrel, and they quarrel. And nothing seems to be going quite right. Isn't life very often like this? You know, two steps forward, uh, one step back, two steps back, three steps back even. And backwards and forwards we seem to go. I I suspect if we went round every one of us this morning, we would encounter similar stories. You know, oh, it took so long to find the right job, but finally it came, and then after just three months, the market changed, and I'm top of the list for redundancy. Or it was full on while my dad was in hospital, and we thought things would calm down now that he's back home, but now my sister's marriage is in trouble. See, this isn't unusual. This is normal. Genesis reminds us that life in a fallen world is often, even usually, frustrating. How many characters are there in the Bible story wrapped up in the history of God's salvation plan that culminates in Jesus? There's loads of them. Do any of them have an easy time? Any of them at all? And and, and if that is how it is for those at the heart of God's purposes for the world, why do we think it's going to be any different for us? What matters in the end isn't how much frustration you get. What matters, actually, is the relentless grace and kindness of God in the face of our fear and frustration. There is, finally, some relief in uh, verse 22. With the last well, nobody quarrels, so Isaac can settle down and flourish. And so finally we come to fruitfulness in the last section of the chapter. God appears to Isaac. Do not be afraid, he says. That's exactly what Isaac has been doing, isn't it? He's been fearing human beings rather than God. But God reaffirms his promise to bless. But do you see again, before he said, I will be with you, now he says, I am with you. And Isaac prays and he digs another well for good measure. But then it seems the cycle of frustration is back again. Verse 26, Abimelech has followed him. Why are you here, says Isaac. 
you, know, you were the one who wanted me out of your life, and now you're following me around. Well, look at verse 28. Abimelech is a man of surprises once again. <clears throat> no hostility, but a desire for peace. We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. The Lord was with you. He asks for a treaty, a covenant. They, they feast and they swear oaths. They leave in peace. Isaac is blessed with further security in a well at Beersheba. Does Isaac deserve any of this? Well, hardly. And it's like we saw last week with the beginning of Jacob and Esau. The whole point of the mercy and grace of God is that it is entirely undeserved. It comes to the undeserving and Isaac gets what he doesn't deserve. He is blessed. Now the blessing for Isaac comes in the form of water in wells at this point. But actually there is an even deeper blessing in this chapter. And we've highlighted it as we've been through. It came three times. I will be with you. I am with you. And then Abimelech looking on saying, well look, the Lord was with you. Do you see? Future, present, past. God with him. And this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions. In Islam, for example, if you keep the rules and you deny yourself blessings now, well, you will get blessings later in paradise of gold and wine and virgins and and, and sort of physical things like that, ready for you in paradise. In Christianity, the focus consistently is not on getting stuff, but getting God himself. Eternal life is knowing God. John Piper has a book with the title, God is the Gospel. Subtitle, God's love is the gift of himself. Do you see? Now, I've told this story before, but it's a good one, so I'll tell it again, see if you remember it. A boy says to his dad, Dad, how much do you earn per hour? And his dad says, well, son, you know, that's not the kind of question you ask your dad. And the son says, no, 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 please, please tell me, please tell me. And so his his dad says, okay, I'll tell you. It's 40 pounds an hour. And his son comes straight back. Great, great, can I borrow nine pounds? And his dad says, well, no, if that's why you're asking how much I earn, certainly not. And he sends him off to his room. And a little while later, the dad is feeling a bit bad. and He thinks maybe he shouldn't have been so harsh. So he goes upstairs and he finds his son and he says to him, son, I've changed my mind. You, you can have that nine pounds. Here you go. And his son says, great. And he gets out three ten-pound notes and a one-pound coin and he adds the nine pounds to them. His dad says, what's, what's going on? You had more than nine pounds all along. And his son looks at him triumphantly and says, dad, here's 40 pounds. Please can I buy an hour of your time? Now, we know, don't we, that it's all too easy to palm someone off with stuff. But the greatest gift any of us can give is ourselves. And that is how it is with God. How much more with God? Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. I will be with you. I am with you. He has been with us. 
If you're just looking into Christian things and you're wondering, what is, what is it that Christians believe? Get this. At the heart of what Christians believe is that we can have a relationship with the God who made us. We can know him personally. We get him. He is life. And if you're in a time of famine, in a time of trial, like we've seen here, know that if you trust in Jesus, you have him. No one and nothing can separate you from him. Corrie ten Boom was a prisoner in a German concentration camp in the Second World War, and she said this, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And then if you're fearing things or people other than God himself, as we've seen Isaac doing here, if you fear the opinions of others, the loss of your security or your loved ones, the diagnosis from the doctors, whatever it is that might drive you or me to do an Isaac and take the easy way out, to doubt God's goodness. See that if you have Christ, you have everything you need. As an old hymn put it, fear him, you saints, and then you will have nothing else to fear. And in the face of frustrations, daily frustrations, the ups and downs of life, when it feels as if God is giving with one hand and taking away with the other. We sang of that in the first song, didn't we? He probably is, and that's okay, because unlike Isaac, our flourishing does not depend on going from well to well, desperately trying to kind of claw out a bit of blessing here and a bit of blessing there. What does Jesus say to the woman that he meets at a well of all places in John chapter 4? Verse 13, he says to this woman, he says, everyone who drinks this water down here in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, do you get the point? If you have Jesus, you have the water that really matters. And instead of the odd well here or there or the odd kind of blessing that we're longing for and we think if I get this one thing in place then my life will be sorted out. No, in Jesus you have an ocean that never ends. Do you see? So why then do we dash from experience to experience and look for fulfilment in temporary success here and there that will never satisfy and definitely won't last when we have Christ, the living Water. I am with you, God says. Isaac was blessed, and in Christ we are blessed, but then don't miss finally that in in God's grace, Isaac was also a blessing. You see, in choosing one nation, in choosing the descendants of Abraham, we keep seeing again and again that God's intention was not to choose them and no one else but choose them in order that the whole world would be blessed. And that is what we see here with Abimelech, you see. With with Abraham back in Egypt, with Pharaoh in chapter 12, it was the opposite. There was no blessing for Pharaoh, and Abraham was clearly not fulfilling God's plan. And so soon after hearing that promise, it kind of stands in stark contrast to what Abraham ought to be doing. But here, Abimelech finds peace. The nations are blessed. Messed up Isaac with his confused motives and fearful heart, is still used by God to bless the world. 
Isn't it striking how we look and we see Isaac's failures and we kind of go, oh, you know, he shouldn't have done that. What's he doing behaving like that? But Abimelech looks and says, God is with you. And I want to be part of that. So we should be encouraged, you see, if we're trusting Jesus but we struggle with sin and temptation and fear and frustration and we don't live the Christian life that we know we're called to, well, be encouraged. God uses sinners. One commentator puts it like this. Who would start a think tank with dropouts? Who would start a business with gamblers? Who would start a religion with sinners? Jesus. Because the king provides everything. We get the mercy. He gets the glory. See the point? We are sinners like Isaac or or, or even like Prince Jackson. We come from a family of sinners. All of us do. Not just our biological family, but our entire human heritage is one of failure and mess. But God uses sinners. He can make us fruitful. So just because we're struggling in some way, and and in many ways we all will be in different ways, well, God can still use us to reach non-Christian friends and family. We don't need to wait to share our faith until everything has calmed down, which is so often the temptation, isn't it? Because actually, do you know what? The rest of the world struggles with all these things too, just like we do. And what do they need to hear? They need to hear that God is a God who in his grace saves and uses sinners and meets us in the mess. Not just when everything's fine and we can present a happy, smiley face to the world, but when everything is not fine and we can testify to God's work in us, in our lives. And actually, maybe then, that is when people might start to realise that this is something that they could put their trust in too. This is about broken people reaching broken people with the news that there is a God of relentless grace in Christ. So come to Christ who has living water. Come for the first time if you've never done that. Come again and again and know that God's grace is sufficient to bless us and cause us to be a blessing, to make us fruitful to reach the world. Let's have a moment of quiet to consider our our own response to that. So what we've heard, and then I'll lead us in the prayer. Father God, we know we are people who struggle with famine, with fear, with frustration. But we want to be fruitful. And thank you that you don't wait for us to sort ourselves out by ourselves. But you come down to meet us in the mess. To give us relentless grace in the face of our sin and weakness.
And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that our trust will be in Jesus who has living water. That the privilege of knowing him would transform our experience of all the things that we go through each day. Not because you're just going to make them vanish just like that, but because we know Jesus. And may we then be used by you like Isaac was in his sin and weakness to reach an unbelieving world, to bring blessing to the world around us. Help us even today to trust in Jesus for the first time if we've not yet done so. Or to understand more of what that means. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.